Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and I have the privilege today of hosting a conversation between Adyashanti and Francis Bennett. We're going to be talking about Adyashanti's book, Resurrecting Jesus. I listened to the audio version of this book and I had the feeling as I was reading it that it was something I could read or listen to repeatedly, periodically over the years and that as I progressed in my own spiritual development I would be able to appreciate deeper and deeper levels of what Adyashanti was bringing out in the book. I think it has a lot of vertical dimension to it. Francis read the book four times, <laughs> including once it's on It's kind of right up my alley, I would say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so I, I assume he liked it. <laughs> so let me introduce Adya and Francis. Adyashanti is the author of The Way of Liberation, Resurrecting Jesus, True Meditation, and The End of Your World. He's an American-born spiritual teacher devoted to serving the awakening of all beings. His teachings are an open invitation to stop, inquire, and recognize what is true and liberating at the core of all existence. Asked to teach in 1996 by his Zen teacher of 14 years, Adyashanti offers teachings that are free of any tradition or ideology. Quote, The truth I point to is not confined within any religious point of view, belief system, or doctrine, but is open to all and found within all. End quote. He teaches throughout North America and Europe, offering satsangs, weekend intensive, silent retreats, and a live internet radio broadcast. Francis Bennett was an ordinary, sociable young man. He's still relatively sociable, not as young anymore, uh, who answered the call to a life of spiritual adventure as a contemplative in the monastery of the Order of Cistercians of the Strict Observance, commonly known as Trappists. Thomas Merton, the pioneering Christian mystic of the 20th century, was Francis's inspiration, and it was Merton's influence that led Francis to explore the deepest reality of being within the frameworks of Christianity, Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta, and non-duality. Francis has worked with the sick and dying in parishes, hospitals, and hospices since he moved away from the monastic life. In 2010, while in the middle of Mass, there came what Francis describes as, quote, a radical perceptual shift in consciousness, which made it clear that the pure awareness at the heart of all is no different from the presence of God, which he had been seeking outside of himself for so long. As I was listening to this book, pretty much every point I felt could easily be a springboard for a whole conversation. It's very rich, there's a lot to unpack. And I kept thinking, what are we gonna talk about in this interview because there's so many different angles we could take and it's, it could be so comprehensive. But I sort of hoped, and I still hope, that with a little bit of a send-off, Francis and, and Adya will just get into a conversation and, and I'll stay pretty much out of it. Maybe I'll have a couple of questions towards the end, which is unlike the way I usually do interviews, but it will <laughs> be a great relief to those who say I talk too much. Um, <laughs> Well, Glenda and the Wizard of Oz says it's best to start at the beginning, right? <laughs> Isn't that a line from the Wizard of Oz? I think it might be. So let me ask, uh, just to kickstart it, what motivated you to write this book? A love of the, of the Jesus story, as mm -hmm. I said. Love the story since I was a kid. Just like so many people, totally captured my imagination. It's really the founding story or mythic story of our whole Western culture. I think it still uh, dominates our culture, even though Christianity as a whole doesn't dominate the culture like it did 500 years ago. But still, you just feel it everywhere in the culture. And 
personally, it was just, it was something that totally captured my imagination. I was taken by the story, I was taken by, when I was a kid, sort of the magical quality, as children love sort of magical things. And it also had, probably more than anything, it connected me to the magic, I would think, of, of existence. I just, just that feeling of sacredness, you know, and even for me, like every Christmas would roll around. And about two months before Christmas, I thought, I always felt like I would enter into this different domain, almost like a, into a Harry Potter movie. Yeah, but it would too. just start, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the whole atmosphere, the energy of the land, of the space we're in, just sort of would alter and I could feel it. And it would break me in this place that felt very, very, very sacred. And it would last, start a couple months before Christmas and it would last for at least a month afterwards. So there's like mm -hmm. a three month window. And it still happens to me to this day. There's like this three month window that's sort of extra extraordinary. And to me, that was always tied in with this amazing story of mm -hmm. this amazing being. So it's, it's that feeling, I think, more than anything that has captured me. Since your awakening and since you became very busy as a spiritual teacher, had you really had much time to put your attention on the story of Jesus and give it much thought? Or was this like a real discovery adventure for you, re researching and, and writing this book? Did you kind of like, all kinds of ahas came to you that you hadn't really thought about before? Kind of both. Mm. Kind of both. I mean, I really got into the whole Christian mystical sort of tradition probably in my mid-twenties, you know, after I'd been doing Zen for four or five years when, you know, in your 20s, four or five years seems like forever, especially if you're doing Zen because it's, it's just, <laughs> it can be so difficult. But I felt something was missing, something I couldn't connect with. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to find it. I didn't know where to search for it. But I started to see it in these books of the Christian mystics. And when I was in my mid-20s, I just started devouring books. I mean, probably 200 books all of the Christian mystics. And only in retrospect, you know, like looking back in the rearview mirror, we're all so much wiser than we are at the present. But looking back, I could see that what it did was connect me to the sacred heart, to the spiritual heart, which I couldn't find in Zen. Now I can see that it was there, but it wasn't there as a Westerner mm. in a way that was easy for me to access. Yeah. You know, even the idea of compassion to my way of being wasn't a way I could feel compassion, but it didn't get me into the sort of the spiritual heart. It didn't really open the whole thing up. And then just reading some of these mystics, it was almost like entering into that three months of magic again, hmm. that I could open those books, read St. Therese, St. John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart, and many, many others, and all of a sudden it would be. So that's where it started. We were talking in the car on the way up about how in certain Buddhist traditions, maybe predominantly, there's very little talk of God and, and actually a number of prominent Buddhists proclaim themselves as atheists. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of speculating as to why that is and whether Buddhism, at least as those people practice it, only took you so far and that there's a whole other range of possibilities, which I think you're alluding to now, which involve the heart and more refined perception and you know deeper appreciation of God's creation and of God himself or mm -hmm. himself. I think to me the Christian at least for me because I don't like to make general statements because the way people interact with their traditions is very unique to them but for me I think of the best of the Christian tradition as a kind of enlightened duality. 
What do you mean by that? Uh, and I mean that in the very best sense. I mean that as a tradition, of course, the mystics go beyond that, beyond any kind of duality, or a lot of them go right beyond any duality. But I think one of its gifts, and its gifts is a very needed gift in the world of non-duality sort of spirituality, is that, you know, our minds kind of get so stuck on these hierarchies, like non-duality is better than duality. Really? Where is that written? And what's that duality? <laughs> right. And what's that? Exactly. You know, and here we are, right? We call this duality. But to me, like an enlightened duality is, I guess to me, I could summarize it really simply, is when you see and feel and experience everything, everything you see, taste, touch, feel, is God. And in the radical non-dual circles, that the, the world is sort of is called an illusion, yeah, right, right, like right. something that's a dream. Right. And that has a legitimacy too, because contemplatives for thousands of years have had these experiences where the world does seem like a dream, does seem comparatively to some deeper state of being of very little importance, and that's very freeing and very liberating. But the other side is like the, the completion of that insight is when you see it's also absolutely God. Not as a philosophy or a theology, but you actually experience it that way. And that's, to me, you could talk about that, I suppose, in lots of different, use different language. But to see everything as God, or as Ramana Maharshi might see everything as the self, whatever language works for you, to me, that's what I mean when I say enlightened duality. You know, it's the seeing duality for what it really is. It's divine. This yeah. whole thing where we call some parts real and some parts unreal, it's a convention of our human minds. It doesn't actually exist out here in life. There's not things that are, you know, a tree is real or not real. I mean, <laughs> these are ways that we, I think, we confuse ourselves. That's chime in, Francis? What I liked about this book is that it really captures for me the essence of what, for me, Jesus is for me now. I grew up, you know, Catholic and a little boy going to Mass and loving Jesus, you know, all the time, and then ended up in religious life. So my sense of Jesus was very devotional and so on. But then after a kind of shift happened in around 2010 that was, well, shifts happened for many years, over many, many years, little shifts and big shifts. And then in 2010, it seemed like everything was spun on its head, sort of. And Jesus took on a whole different sort of meaning for me. What happened with me, I think, was I discovered that you could say the Christ within me, that who I was in my essence, in transcendence, was the Christ, that the Christ was living in and through me. And a lot of the early Christian formulations about Jesus, the theological formulations, the creedal statements, and, and statements by the fathers of the church, fathers and mothers of the church, they talk about what they call the hypostatic union, of humanity and divinity, you know, in this one person. And for me, that's a beautiful, beautiful model of enlightened consciousness because Jesus is fully, fully human and fully divine. Not 50% human and 50% divine, but 100% human and 100% divine all together. That it's like two sides of a coin. You can't really separate the sides of a coin. They both make up the coin. I think in the non-dual scene, it's a needed kind of approach, just this idea that yes, it's necessary to transcend our humanity, to realize that we're not merely a body and mind, we're not limited to that. 
We're not somehow confined to that. And so we experience this reality of transcendence, that who we are on the very deepest, most profound level is pure consciousness, pure awareness. But that's incarnated in a human being, in our case, a human being, in other cases, a giraffe or an aardvark or a, a praying mantis or you know, whatever. But I think that Jesus is just a beautiful model of that, that marriage of the human and the divine, and that they're not separate, that they don't need to be seen as mutually exclusive. That coming to a place of transcendence doesn't obliterate our humanity, it actually causes it to flower. We actually come to realize that what it really means to be human is just this glorious divine incarnation. That what they said about Jesus, the early fathers and mothers of the church, that it wasn't only true for Jesus, but that it's true for everybody on the planet that we all are potentially incarnations of God, you know, that we need to wake up to that. We need to wake up to that transcendence, but then it needs to be embodied in an ordinary human life through things like marriage and work and raising children and, and living in the world and, and loving in the world and playing in the world, the whole thing, you know. So I, I really was really thrilled to find this book in a non-dual kind of tone, but using Jesus as a model for that, because I think he's a great model. And I like what you said, as seen as Jesus as a model, because that's what I discovered, going back to your earlier question, later in life, after I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And that's what it so surprised me when I did really go back and start to, because I had read like a couple hundred book on mystics, right? Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, which seems crazy now, but I hadn't actually read through the, the New Testament all the way through. Oh. I had never done it. I'd read in parts of it. Mm -hmm. But when I sat down and did it, the first thought I had, as I said in the book, was, who's this guy? <laughs> I've never heard of this guy, because the only Jesus I ever heard of yeah. was the theological, the theological, which is an amazing Jesus. Yeah. But then I go into the story, and this is this amazing being that is, as you said, divine and also extraordinarily human. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me and still strikes me to this day about him, as I, when I thought of, you know, the people sitting there writing this story, or probably telling it orally before that, the tradition. I thought, how did they not edit all his humanity out? Because usually that's what happens, yeah. right? In the Buddhist story, you don't get that much humanity. Right. You know, you go to the Hindu saints or God. Krishna. You know, so much of the, there's like no humanity. There's absolute sort of abstract perfection. And I was amazed to find there's so much humanity, right? He could get upset, he could get angry, he could get extremely despondent. Yeah. And he could have all these amazing spiritual insights, and all this was mixed up into the same being. And when I rediscovered it, I thought, okay, now there's an accurate depiction of a human being, of what it means. Yeah, highly developed human being, obviously, but this mix of human and divine. Mm -hmm. And I just found it extraordinary, you know, because I had so much heard about the theological sort of this Christ. super guy, superman. Kind this of. kind of superman. And then you read the story and you realize there's a lot that's in here that's, that is superman, but there's a lot in here that's not superman. Right. I was just floored, like, they didn't take this stuff out, because usually I think it's erased. <laughs> Do you know right. what I mean? It's erased to this day, you know, with... Like I always tell people, if you want a perfect teacher, you pick a dead one. Because <laughs> you know, then you can make anything you want out They're of them. They're hard to argue with. They're hard to argue with, right. You can make them into anything you want. <laughs> I think I connected with what you said very much about that. I just think it was so honest. Yeah, yeah. So honest. 
Well, in the garden, he's there. You know, the disciples are all asleep. He knows he's basically cooked. You know, he knows these are going to come and get him. And it says that he actually wept and said, you know, please take this cup from me and sweat great drops of blood. I mean, this does not sound like some placid, benign sort of <laughs> image of somebody sitting in lotus posture, you know, not to mention the cross. A couple years ago, Rick, you know about this, and a lot of people that know me know about this, but I was in the hospital and I got diagnosed with diabetes and I had an infection in my foot, almost lost my foot. It was a big, big deal, you know. A lot of things happened at that time. I felt kind of very vulnerable in a lot of ways, and yet it was post awakening, you could say. So there was this sense of being in this pure consciousness that was very stable and had been there already for several years. And what I discovered was this human vulnerability, the human pain, the suffering of being sick, of not knowing if I was going to lose my foot or not. You know, I went through these kind of reactions pretty quickly, which was different. But the full range of human emotions was there, you know, the full range of a certain anxiety about losing my foot, you know, arose and then, and then went away. But what struck me was how that, all that is arising in this pure, pristine, kind of perfect peace and even bliss. And it was just amazing. And I, I thought a lot about Jesus during that because I thought that must have been a lot of what he experienced. He didn't shut down around the human aspect of it, and it was arising in that transcendent identity, but it didn't shut it down. It didn't turn it off. It didn't obliterate it or try to annihilate it or deny it. Mm. And I think that's really, really important in this journey of awakening and awakened living that I often talk about an awakening from awakening. That people in Zen, they talk about the stench of awakening, you know, where somebody awakens and then they're stuck in this very transcendent place and they're just denying all their human vulnerability and any kind of human emotion and so on. And what I'm talking about sometimes with this awakening from awakening is like a full circle journey. Yeah, you awaken to the transcendent, like the pendulum's way over here in the relative, then it swings over into the transcendent, but then it swings back until it finds a balance and realizes the two have to be held in a kind of wonderful union. They can't really be separated. So I think Jesus is a really good, good model for that. Mm -hmm. I think it's also what struck me too was, I love the images because the imagery is so powerful and so strong and I think it resonates with especially a Western mind. But I remember this was after I started to teach when I started to read through the story again and that the image right at the beginning of the Gospels, you know, where the spirit descended upon him in the River Jordan like a dove. And I read that and I went, that's it. Because I had had the experience of spirit, and then what we call spirit leaping, literally up and out. And I also had it coming down and in. And I hadn't really heard that talked about. And I, then I read that and I went, oh, that's a completely different spiritual movement. Mm -hmm. It's a different realization than up and out. Yeah. It's literally something, it's the divine almost completely surrendering, giving itself back into, into existence. And to me, that was a key that helped me really get the whole story. That the whole story, it has this transcendent feel through the whole story, but really what it is, it's enlightened duality. It's spirit recognizing the divine here and coming to grips with what that means. Because that means, to me, it means there's two things absolutely certain about life, which is death and tragedy. 
thought you were going to say taxes. <laughs> well, and isn't that the first noble truth, you know? Mm-hmm. It does tie in with the first noble Dukkha. truth. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, a lot of us, part of spirituality was hoping to sort of transcend that in some way. And you can to a great degree, but then you find out that that's not the end of the journey. Yeah. The end of the journey is, okay, I can transcend it. I can let go, almost even let go of my own life. But can I actually embrace it? Right. To me, that's actually a bigger letting go and a bigger surrender. Right. And that's what I find in that story over and over again. I find the surrendering back into life on life's terms, not on some idealized terms, but on real, actual terms. And then how beautiful that is. It's neat to me that you, that you were you were really drawn to the mystics and then didn't really know the direct Jesus story that much because for me, the mystics are a re-embodiment of the Jesus story. They're just the Jesus story extended through time in all these different forms. One image I often use uh, in my uh, retreats and things is the idea of stained glass windows. And I lived in Europe for a while, was lucky enough to live in Paris. And there's many beautiful cathedrals, you know, with all this beautiful stained glass, like at Chartres and Notre Dame. And each stained glass window is unique. Some of them can be similar, they can have similar colors, similar shapes, maybe similar scenes, but there's no two that are exactly alike. And yet the sun comes in and illuminates all of them and shines through them. And they all have this beauty that's really essentially from the sun, but it's filtered through that particular filter, that particular shape, those particular scenes, what they depict and so on. And I think that's the beauty of humanity. That's why I talk so much about humanity. And that's the idea of the mystics, that they each in their own way are like a stained glass window that just shines this light into the world. Yeah. This, this Christ light, this Jesus story, re-sort of told in the life of each of us, you know, and that we're all called to be mystics. You know, the mystics aren't just these people who lived in medieval times that got canonized because they performed so many miracles and so on and so forth, but that every person on the planet is a potential vehicle for that, that, that reality, that transcendent reality. So it's kind of neat to me that you first saw it in the mystics and then went back and read the, like, the Jesus story because my sense, I mean, and I can't prove this, but just an intuitive sense, is that that's kind of what Jesus was trying to get at. I suspect, anyway, if you read all the extant stuff, you read the Gnostic Gospels, you read the canonical Gospels and all that, my sense is that a lot of the stuff that later Christian theological formulations said about Jesus, Jesus was trying to say is true for all of us. That we're all the only begotten son or daughter of God. In the sense that we all reflect this glory of God in a very particular way that's never ever been seen before, will never be seen again. How wonderful is that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like snowflakes or any number of things in nature like that that just can't be reproduced. Yeah. They're similar, but they're not exactly alike. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the important things, especially for today, you know, where we have, in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of efforts to have sort of, I call them ecumenical kumbaya moments, where all different <laughs> religions get together, and then they all pretend like they're talking about exactly the same thing, which is great because it, at least it gets them not to argue so much, right? <laughs> but what gets lost with that, at least as I see it, is 
there's, there is an underlying sort of mystical truth they're all tapping into, but they're actually bringing very different qualities of that truth sure. and, and manifesting those. And that's actually a good thing. If you realize you don't have to sit around arguing about who has the best way to do it. But that's coming back to your point that each, not only each person, but I think even traditions and people within those traditions are manifesting very unique takes Absolutely. on that same reality. And to me, that makes it much more rich when yeah. you realize, wow, yeah, you can see it through Ramana's eyes. You can see it through Jesus' eyes or St. John's eyes or you can see it through your eyes or you can see it through that person's eyes. And sure, people can be deluded and their take can be completely an illusion, but people can also be very clear and their take can be very legitimate and very sure. beautiful. You know, when I was a Trappist at Gethsemane, we were engaged a lot in interreligious dialogues and the Dalai Lama came. There's even some books, the Gethsemane, what is it, experience or something, I forget what they're called now, but they were books uh, about, they were like a kind of a account of some of these dialogical processes that went on. And I remember the Dalai Lama one time saying, at one of these that he said, you know, people think that Buddhism is the highest religion or, you know, if you're Buddhist or if you're Christian, you think that's the highest religion. But he said, in my opinion, maybe somebody in one particular lifetime, they may be best off being in a very dualistic sort of devotional place, or they may be better off being in a very non-dual kind of unitive vision of things. And that, you know, it all just sort of unfolds and works itself out the way it's meant to. And each of those insights has something kind of special to bring to the table and they're valid, they have a validity. Mm -hmm. So non-duality is maybe the absolute kind of ultimate truth, but duality has its place. It doesn't need to be seen as something that needs to be kind of obliterated. It has a validity, it has a kind of relative validity. And uh, I thought that was neat that he could recognize that, especially somebody as a kind of representative of a huge Buddhist sort of organization. Yeah, yeah. well, he obviously has a very ecumenical, vast view. Right? Oh, yeah. He's not, which is, I think, even makes it more extraordinary when someone like that is basically the head of the whole sect of, of Tibetan Buddhism and yet can have that view, yeah. you know, which is tra transcending his own his own religious perspective right. to say something like that. Right. Hopefully we all can, we can all do that. We can certainly all learn something by it. Pope is starting sure. to talk that way too. This oh Pope, yeah. You know, Amazing. Maybe he and the Dalai Lama. He's got a great name too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 He's extraordinary actually. I think it's just mm -hmm. fun to watch him operate. <laughs> One thing that um, in the book a lot you talk about Jesus says, metaphor, is that the word you used? Or, he's symbolic of a lot of things. But what if we could also say that it's possible that he literally did the things he was said to have done? Sure. Walked on water, healed the sick, raised mm -hmm. the dead, turned water into mm -hmm. wine, all those things. Then if that is true, then to me that makes Jesus a very interesting kind of example of what human beings can actually aspire to or become. Sure. And on the one hand, you don't want to, you know, make him into some sort of super ultra thing that nobody could ever attain, and, mm -hmm. and then people feel like that he was some kind of unique being. And, and this is, you know, one of the major aspects of many aspects of Christianity that none of us could ever aspire to, that he was something special and, and unique and one and only. But on the other hand, I see a tendency in many spiritual circles for people to kind of 
dumb down spirituality a bit mm -hmm. to, ha to have some little awakening and to say I'm finished or it's only this right. or, or whatever right. and th to actually criticize when people start talking about what may sound like more flowery or extraordinary possibilities mm -hmm. to criticize that as a distraction or, or a, you know you're falling back into delusion or something to make believe or something yeah yeah right. because it's only this simple thing and right. that's it and I, right. I'm, I'm done <laughs> yeah so yeah. I, I've, I've probably used twice as many words as I needed to to, to get out that point but maybe you guys a, I think it's a great point you know and in in, if you go over to India yeah. you know you start talking about their saints and sages you know to be able to walk on water and heal the sick it's like yeah. man they're a dime a dozen over here doesn't mean they're not special I mean I, that's overstating <laughs> to say they're a dime a dozen but it's not an unusual thing reserved for one person, and they don't see it as just magical thinking. Yeah. With someone like Jesus, we'll never know. Right? There are no cameras, we'll never know. But I think what you're saying brings up a really good point, because it's part of spirituality that I think is easy to lose sight of. I think like the absolute nature of reality is something that, well, it's just the absolute nature of everything, you know, whether it's ordinary or extraordinary, unique or unified, whatever it is. And in that sense, it's, it's just sort of the underlying suchness of existence. Then we also got this um, other whole part of realization that it's about what is um, the extraordinary, almost infinite capacity of any being, but we'll just talk about human beings, right? Obviously, human beings, the human mind has extraordinary capacities, potentials in it. And there's a whole part of spirituality that is a lot about unlocking those potentials, bringing them into manifestation, whether they're miraculous, whether they're healing, or all sorts of other human potentials that, again, I think if we just go to sort of the absolute, those potentials don't take on much importance. In fact, forms of spirituality that aim exclusively at the absolute. You're often told directly, don't put your attention on that stuff. Oh, you can read someone's mind. Don't worry about it. Let it go. Just focus. Refocus. You know, Zen, they do that. You know, no matter what, you get Christian some mysticism my too. mystical thing happen. Don't. And there's a reason for that, because you can become a sidetrack. And so I think for a lot of people for a long time, that's really good counsel. Hmm. But... But there's also another aspect of what people are bumping into is the extraordinary nature of human potential. Mm -hmm. And some of that potential verges on what we would think of the magical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And I think it, we, do, we do discount, when we just discount it as some fiction, we're actually discounting certain potentialities within ourselves. I used to be a student of Marshi Mahesh Yogi, as you may recall from your visit to Iowa. Yeah. He used this analogy uh, often of capturing the fort. He said, life is like a territory where you have all these interesting things you could explore, diamond mines and gold mines and silver mines and everything in this territory. But there's a fort which commands the territory. And if you just go after, start going after mines without having captured the fort, then the territory doesn't really belong to you. And so you're kind of on shaky ground, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he said, first capture the fort, but, and ha but having done that, then there's all kinds of interesting possibilities mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. that you could explore. Mm -hmm. And that's what part of relativity is about, right? Exactly. Is exploring those human potentials.
it's interesting you say that's what relativity is about because that's what came into my mind just now was that there are so many different dimensions and levels of being levels of manifestation of this infinite reality you know and a lot of people think oh it's just confined to this human body and this planet and these trees and animals and all the phenomena we kind of see every day and most everybody sees but there's all these other levels there's all these infinite levels I'm convinced they're infinite and in all the spiritual traditions, they talk about angelic realms and demonic realms and heavenly realms and hell realms and all these things that to the normal, ordinary human person, they can't perceive them. But just like a dog, you know, dogs can hear noises that human beings can't hear. Dogs have a whole different experience of reality than a human being or even ants or flies, you know, the way they see with sure. those eyes, those many faceted eyes, they see something completely different. This is precisely pointing to that point I was trying to make before is that when a person transcends the relative, then for the first time, can they really appreciate the depth and the kind of nuance and the kind of profundity really of the relative that it's not just about what seems to appear you know, what's appearing before us. In the creedal statements, they say, I believe in all that is seen and unseen, which is an interesting phrase to me, because it's implying that, okay, there's a lot of stuff that most people see, and there's a lot of stuff that most people don't see, but that doesn't mean it's not real. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sounds that only dogs can hear and we can't hear, but there's still frequencies, there's still sound sure. waves. We just have a little sliver. We can't perceive it. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I think when a person awakens to this transcendent reality, obviously then when they do this return movement, when they awaken from awakening and they realize that there's this integration of both, they realize the kind of amazing beauty and, you know, when we had that panel on uh, celestial perception, this analogy that came to me just in the moment was, it's like if you're in love. If you're in love with, with a woman or a man, they're so special to you, they're so precious to you. And if you're sitting across from them, candlelit dinner or whatever, and you gaze into their eyes, and you can see things that other people can't see. You know, you could see like the little flecks maybe in her or his eyes, and you know, you notice things about them. My sense is that when a person falls in love with divinity or with this transcendent reality, then they actually it heightens somehow the perception that you appreciate things and your perceptions become much more subtle, much more refined, you know? And uh, I think that is a reality of awakening that often is, like you say, dismissed, and yet it is, it's an aspect of the path. It's maybe not the most important aspect. It's not crucial to awakening itself, but it's kind of a natural fruition. And it's mentioned in all the traditions, the Christian mystical tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition, they all talk about these realities. And I think it needs to be addressed because if people don't get stuck in their spiritual evolution, they are going to continue to unfold and begin to encounter this stuff. Yeah, and, sure. And yeah. so they're going to wonder, what, what is this? You know, right. What does it mean? What, you know, why am I seeing this or, here, or perceiving this? And why do I have this ability that other people don't seem to have? So you know, if, if all those things are part of the full range of spiritual possibilities, then we need to understand them as a contemporary culture because people are going to be progressing into them. And I know a number of people, some sure. in this room, 
who already are. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and yeah, it's going back a lot of years, but I remember Mukti having a conversation with me. We were talking and she said, oh, you got to be more careful about what you just casually say that you want. Because I would just like <laughs> casually, oh, I'd like this, I'd like, wouldn't that be fun? I wouldn't even really mean it. And then it would just show up. You know, and then it shows up and sometimes you're like, okay, now what do I do with that? I didn't really, you kind of like, I didn't really mean it, which I actually think is the secret to manifesting anything. You got to not mean it so much yeah. in, in a way. And then it just shows up. But something like that just happens and it's, it's not uncommon, right? It doesn't make anybody special. Lots of people, that kind of stuff occurs, occurs too. And then, yeah, then you do have to kind of go, okay, geez, I got to take responsibility for this. I do have to just be a little more careful about what I casually say, because apparently me and the universe of God have a more intimate understanding of each other now, and things yeah. um, well, are in the current. story of Jesus, if that's a model for this whole unfoldment, it's chock full of all this. I mean, and he's yeah, giving this gosh, teaching, yeah. whatever you desire, whatever you want, believe and you'll receive it. And angels are coming and ministering to him and angels attend his birth and sing and announce that he's going to be born to the shepherds and healings are happening. He's, he's calming the storms and things like that. Yeah. And I'm not saying all that necessarily is historically, literally true, but I'm, I'm willing to kind of guess that some of it probably was. You know, because look at all the different traditions, all the mystics and saints of all the different traditions have had all these experiences. And even to this day, people have experiences like this. So it is also in the story of Jesus, if we want to use that as a model, it's saying that, yeah, this is part of the journey. It's maybe not the crucial central theme, but it's part of it. He often would say to people when he'd heal them, don't tell anybody. So you can see that even Jesus, he kind of had this sense that this is not what I want people to mo mostly focus on, but it's there. Yeah, which was, a, to me, a really interesting part of the story, is that he had this whole, like, healing, miraculous thing going on, but he was always trying to keep people to be keep quiet it on the down low. Keep it on the down low, because he had, he had a different message. Yeah. He had a very different message, and most of his miracles were, not all of them, but many of them were done for the sake of someone else, not for the sake of displaying a miracle. Right. Yeah, he, would, he healed people that he didn't even want to be there. He really didn't. He would rather have not had to deal with it and all that. Oh, well, okay. I'll, yeah. well, I'll show up and I'll, you know, that's compassion. Mm -hmm. That's not somebody going, going, look what I can do. Mm -hmm. There's this beautiful, beautiful story. I think it's in Mark where the lady is a Samaritan or something. She's from some, she's not Jewish. And she comes to Jesus and she wants him to perform a miracle to heal somebody. And he says, well, I've come only for the children of Israel. You know, that's mostly my mission. I'm out to kind of preach to Israel. And she kind of persists and persists. And she says, well, Lord, or he says, I, I can't give uh, food to the dogs when the chits a pretty strong statement, actually. Yeah. He says, I can't give food to the dogs when the children are hungry mm -hmm. to feed the children first. <laughs> and then she says, but Lord, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And he says, that's so good. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and he heals her, you know. <laughs> you got a good point. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's a great story. I do too. And I think like the counterbalance to that is also found right at the beginning when he goes into the desert. And basically, the whole temptation of the devil is the devil's basically in lots of different ways saying, use your powers for self-centered reasons. Right. And he's always rejecting that at every, whether it's power or to show off or to test God or to yes. prove his own enlightenment. Anything that's self-serving, he's basically saying, no, I won't use any of my powers for any of that. I think that's a teaching that dovetails with all the miracles you'll see. 
Because all the miracles you see are not self-serving miracles. Exactly. But the devil, everything he wanted Jesus to do was all ways of egoically utilizing that power. Mm -hmm. And I, I've always seen those two sort of teachings dovetailing each other really That's quite interesting well. because a lot of spiritual teachers have perhaps succumbed to that temptation sure. from the devil. Guru is almost a dirty word because so many gurus have tripped up, you know, mm -hmm. when tempted sure. by this, that, and the other thing. Sure. Um, well, power is, a, power is a dangerous thing. Mm. Any kind of power, whether it's just power somebody gives you as authority, whether it's spiritual power, any, any power is anybody that thinks they're beyond the temptations of power have already begun to succumb to it. It's a potentially very dangerous thing to play with, and I think that's why all the traditions talk about basically how to utilize what it is to wisely utilize power, whether you call it in Buddhism right action mm. or you see it in the devil tempting Jesus or however you do, there's always an acknowledgement of the dangers of power and the necessity to be able to use it in a wise and compassionate, basically a selfless way because that's part of waking up. You become a more powerful person. It's part of the, part of the and, deal. And it's the insight too, isn't it, that you don't, you don't own that power. That's right. not, like, there's nobody really to be enlightened in a certain sense. You don't yeah. own enlightenment. There's just clarity of vision. There's clarity of seeing. It doesn't belong to anyone. You can't claim it and say, oh, you know, that's something that will give me something to talk about at cocktail parties now. I'm not only a millionaire at 35 and blah, 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 but I'm also enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus, I let, when he would often always say, basically, I'm not doing this, it's the fathers that do exactly, it. His yeah. reference was always to something larger than his humanity. Absolutely. And I think that's another important counterbalance to other forms of spirituality, even forms of our own insight, where we can forget that on a human level, that it's really wise to have some sort of sense of something bigger. Yeah. That's the paradox is like, mm. I am that, I'm the all, and I'm a human being and I have to be in correct relationship to the all. Because it is me and in one sense it's also bigger than me. Yes. And I think that if it gets out of balance, you know, if it gets out of balance that you're only in relationship, then you never fully awaken. If you just go, it's all me, and you fall out of any sort of human relative relationship with what's bigger than you, then and you're you get, megalomania. You, you're a megalomaniac. Yeah. 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 Your enlightenment has unfortunately deluded you. There's a great line in the spiritual 14th century classic I'm going to be talking at, about at Sand called the cloud of unknowing. And it's a radical statement for a 14th century Christian mystic. But he says, God is your being. But always remember, you are not God's being. So that's what he's pointing to. Just that's that, a great line. Yeah, there's this transcendent reality that is the, at the core of your being, who you are, and yet who you are on a relative level in itself isn't that. It's part of that, but it's it's included in all of phenomena, all of reality. You know, because that's where you know when the ego becomes God, well, then you're in trouble. Yeah, you, we're all God in one sense, but. In another sense, we're not. <laughs> yeah. So it's always good to remember, I think. I always remember. It was very telling to me. This was years ago when um, me and Mukti did this two-day intensive. And it was one of the worst attended intensives that I ever did <laughs> at that time. And it was because of what it was about. And the, the title was Servants of Truth. And while I was all what it was to be a servant of what we realized. 
basically to come into right relationship with what our own realization is, how to embody it and move it. And it was so telling to me when we had it, and I thought, wow, these intensives usually get, you know, 350 people, and there's less than 200 here. <laughs> and what it did would make me, it wasn't that the numbers matter, but as a teacher, what it made me do was go, okay, Aja, um, what aren't you getting across? You know, what aren't you, there's something that you have not been able to communicate, the importance. You know, you're trying to do it now at this event, but the fact that so few people were that interested showed me that I was, I had been not been communicating the importance of how to be in that relationship with your own realization or with divinity, that the idea of being a servant to it was so off-putting to a lot of people. Hmm. You know, it, it really clued me into something really important, what I felt was and so important. So why did you feel that people were uninterested in that? I didn't quite um, get the... Westerners don't like being a servant of anything. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. We all, every, in the West, we all are taught to be, on the t to be the top dog, to be the head of the class, to have people serving you or something serving you. Even if it's God serving you, we're taught how to ask God for exactly what we want. Mm. We're not often taught so much about how, how to give ourselves completely away to God, as I call it, giving the keys back to divinity. So I think there's something in, in our Western psyche that's, that's harder for us to make this sort of shift to realize that to embody what we, our deepest realizations, it's a kind of a relationship where we're serving it. We're, we're literally are serving something. We're like a vehicle for we're it. We're a vehicle for it. And to be a vehicle, it takes a kind of humility because we won't ever do it in some sort of idealized, perfect way. That's the beauty of it, I think. We all have infinite capacity to embody and express the truth. But because it's infinite, there's no line you cross where you go, got it. Yeah, right. I can now perfectly manifest the divine in every situation. But there know? is, I mean, as I go around and do retreats, I get a sense that a lot of people kind of look at it that way. Mm -hmm. that I think they do. You're going to one day get it, and then you'll be done. And I've even run across a little group that will remain nameless, but some people know who they are. But there's some people that had some teachers, and they would talk about people in the group being done. And when I first heard that, I was like, oh, crime in Italy done. <laughs> yeah. Who's ever done, you know? But also this points to something that, again, that goes back to the Jesus story, is the importance of humility. Mm -hmm. And the saying of Jesus that appears in the, I think, all the canonical Gospels, and even in some Gnostic Gospels as a saying, which the scholars will say that indicates that it probably did come out of the mouth of Jesus at some point along the way, is that the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And that that is the model, that servant leadership that, re that true leadership serves, mm -hmm. that true leadership washes the feet of those who, who they're leading. And so Jesus is a great example of that, you know, which as you say, it's so countercultural. It's just not. It really, it really even is. Even in spirituality, I mm -hmm. mean, even in the spiritual scene, there's a lot of spiritual materialism. It's like, I want to be the top dog. I want to be the most enlightened. I want to just look at Facebook and you've got different people like trying to prove they're more enlightened than other people, which seems ironically quite unenlightened, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's like you see it in the spiritual scene, this kind of materialism and wanting to achieve and wanting to kind of feel like I've arrived. And then here Jesus as a model, he comes along and says, no, if you want to be the greatest, he says in the kingdom of God, serve everybody else, be the least. If you want to be the greatest at a feast, take the lowest place. And then the master of the feast will say, hey friend, come up higher. But if you take the highest place, he may say, hey, go down. You know, mm. there's somebody else at that place. For yeah. Yeah. 
very counterintuitive for our Western. It is because we, we are so taught to make, I think almost unconsciously, everything is kind of an exchange. Even if we have, you know, we can have devotional practices to God, which can be really beautiful and heart opening. But if you're not careful, they can become an exchange too. Like I do this and then I feel bliss and I feel open and wonderful, which can be fantastic. But there's a payoff. Like it, there's a payoff. I do this in order to get that. You know, mm -hmm. what if you were devotional and you never got anything back? And so I think there's that way and it's when we stop, I think it's just part of spiritual maturity, right? We've all done what we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Right? I We've know. all, <laughs> that's how we know anything about it. We've all been there. But I think it's just a matter of us at a certain point of maturity, things kind of start to shift and we start to realize, oh, okay. To serve the, I'm not just, I haven't been given this just so I can feel great, feel blissed out, feel top dog or whatever that we're, it's there i think to embody it and i think that is to kind of serve it to me that's the feeling that's what i love about i also like about the jesus story is you just get this sense of that this feeling of that you know washing the disciples feet at, at, at the last supper and then i don't you probably so can beautiful. remind me the one which one was it that didn't want his feet washed one? oh yeah peter right and he basically no made, no lord don't wash my feet i'm not right. worthy to do that and he says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. Right, you're out. And then Peter says, okay, well then, wash my feet and my head and my hands and everything else. <laughs> Peter was always kind of not getting it pretty yeah. much all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think if Peter is first like pope. Saint Everyman, you know, the person that really tries hard, but doesn't, he can't quite, you know, get out of the box. But that was a great teaching. Yeah. It was like, no, this is how it works. This is how it has to work. It's an interesting point on the service thing, which is that if there's a sort of evolutionary force that's governing and, and motivating the universe and evolving more and more sophisticated forms through which you know, the divine can know itself, then it would seem that as we embody the divine more and more fully, we're going to be called to be a servant of that force, to be a, a, a conduit mm -hmm. through which that force can do its thing, which it very much wants to do. Otherwise, it's a waste. For us, in a way, if enlightenment is, can be a selfish thing, oh boy, I got it, I, I'm so happy and it's for me, mm -hmm. then it seems like that would contradict what apparently is the, the motivating spark of the universe. It would run counter to its purposes. What's that whole, you know, the idea of, that some teachers have uh, kind of expounded on more is this idea of evolutionary enlightenment. And the whole integral spiritual movement is into that. And that, there, that there's a kind of quality to the absolute consciousness that it wants to embody. Yeah. It wants to serve life. It wants to somehow pour itself out. And I, I love that part in, in the book about Jesus that you wrote where you talk about that scripture that's been a bone of contention in world religion for decades and centuries and millennial is this idea that John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish and that God sent his son into the world to save the world and so on. And then Adya was saying in the book, well, that, that that's true for all of us, mm -hmm. that all of us are this Christ embodiment, this Christ incarnation that came to pour itself out, that came to serve, that came to somehow give everything back to life. I mean, when I work with people kind of in my, in my teaching, I talk about a contemplative practice or a meditative practice, surrender and service. Because service to me is a spiritual practice. 
I think a lot of people look at it like, okay, it's a result of enlightenment. Like if you're really enlightened, if you're really awakened, then you'll just naturally, service will spontaneously flow from you. It's like, okay, well that's fine, but what happens in the meantime? It can also lead to that awakening. Like Mother Teresa, when she'd have sisters come to her, she'd say, go to the home for the dying, touch Christ in this dying person, feed Christ, wash Christ's feet, wash his wounds. And there's an awakening that can happen in that. You can be doing that and suddenly see, oh, you know, I'm not separate from this other, this what I think of as an other. That's the Christ in them that I'm serving. That's the same Christ in me, serving the Christ in them. It also seems that it would attenuate the ego to serve like that. You know? Oh, absolutely. Because if it's all about, oh, i got to have this experience, I want that experience, oh, I, I want it, you know, then it's all... But if you're, if you're focused on serving, then you're not focused on me, me, me. And everybody talks about how attenuating the ego is you know, the key to spiritual development. I think it's a nice counterpoint, the image that that provides, because like I keep saying, like, I love images. That image of, you know, because I think it's, it transcends theology. I think it's ac an actual, based on, I often think of certain statements when I read them. I often think, what state of consciousness would say that? Mm. Which is like, so I'm, can I find the place that that might feel true in me? Can I find that place? Rather than worrying about whether the statement is true, can I find that place? And I think you can find that place where it really does feel like, that your, your deepest nature pours itself back into life from the transcendent, pours itself back into life, knowing what it's all about. It is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. You're not holding on to the heavenly state to do that. It's a sacrifice. You're letting go. You're subjecting yourself to all sorts of unpleasant experiences. But there's something about us that is, that's really, it, it's that quality of love, which is to me what it's, divine incarnation is really all about. It's an act of love. Why, do you, why would you throw yourself back into life? Out of love, that's why. And that's I would what think, love does. Imagine, what else if, can you do? imagine if we had as our founding personal myth that we weren't here as a mistake, that we weren't here because of an illusion, because somehow the, the universe screwed up. We weren't here because we screwed up, you know, that Adam ate the apple and now God's pissed off forevermore. <laughs> You know, because you have both the Eastern and Western sides of yeah, the own way of, of saying, yeah. this is a mistake. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're here to pay for it. Exactly. Whether it's karma or Jesus original has to redeem original sin. And I'm not even saying what I'm going to say is, has absolute truth. But I'm just saying if, we, if you go into your imagination, because I think all this stuff's imagined anyway. But imagine if your founding myth was, what am I doing here? Because whatever I am, so loved the world that I poured myself into it of an act of loving sacrifice in order to redeem everything that was hurt, in pain, confused about my own human incarnation, which will allow me then to broaden out and mm -hmm. touch others. Yep. Can you imagine if that was our founding myth that we just grew up with from day one? I think in one ways it would be at least as true and probably a whole hell of a lot less destructive. Mm. And maybe we need to make our, new, our own new founding myths. Using the old imagery and symbol and archetype, but then kind of putting a different spin on it and realizing that, I mean, really what you're talking about, what came to my mind immediately was, that's the Bodhisattva ideal. Mm -hmm. I mean, like in the Mahayana, 
Buddhist tradition, when I did my Zen stuff, and they did this thing to the, the Bodhisattva of compassion and Kuan Yin and all that, and that is the essence of the Bodhisattva, that Christ is, in a certain sense, a Western embodiment of the Bodhisattva ideal, mm -hmm. of this person that is absolutely aware of this transcendent quality, and yet comes back down into, back on the wheel, you know, the wheel of, the, of karma or whatever, kind of, even though he's transcended it, he decides, I'm going to come back till all sentient beings can join me in the transcendence, you know? And how beautiful, it's just a beautiful, heart-filled, heart-opening way of looking at it. Yeah. I found that I kind of shifted myths as I went along, like 30 years ago, it was, <laughs> I want to get enlightened and never be reborn again because life sucks. Right. <laughs> sure. And now sure. it's like, I'm having so much fun and I, I seem to be contributing something. I could do this any number of lifetimes, I don't care. It's yeah. like, it, it's, so, it's so enjoyable to be kind of a, a conduit for something that helps to better the world. Well, different myths and different stories, they actually, as you say, they serve us. They're good vehicles at different parts of our life where, where we are. Sometimes a, a myth that, you know, a story that says, yeah, you can transcend this all and just be done with it and never be reborn and all that. That can be a really powerful motivation to get out of our stuckness. That's right. Mm -hmm. As I say, I think of all spiritual teachings ultimately, um, which really freed me from worrying about looking for the truth necessarily. In the I'm, to me, I'm clear. You can't state the truth. But most of good spirituality, to me, it's, I look at it as all a strategy. Is this a useful strategy to help me or someone else awaken? Is this a useful strategy or a story or a myth or a teaching to help me embody that? Is this a useful strategy to help me? I think when we start to look at these as strategies, we can stop arguing about which one's right. It's like, does this strategy work for where you are? Right. Yes or no? Now, does this, now you're someplace else. Does that old strategy, do you need that anymore? What's a new one that works, that's relevant to where you are in your life, to where you are spiritually? But we've got to let go of looking at the teachings to tell us what's true. Yeah, exactly. In order to look at them with that kind of discrimination. to an end, that they're not an end in themselves. That's that right. all spiritual right. paths are a means to the end, and the end is to live in that transcendence, in that being. And they all are kind of like different vehicles, just like you can have a Volkswagen, you can have a Maserati, you can have a Honda, you can have a Toyota. They're all going to get you to the same place. They're just different vehicles that the idea is to try to take you somewhere. Yeah. But the idea is to get there. It's not to focus on the vehicle. It's like the finger pointing to the moon analogy thing. You know, it's, the idea isn't to like focus on the finger and build a shrine for the finger and dress it up and do, you know, it's like, no, the finger's pointing. Look at the reality that it's pointing to. Mm -hmm. There's a verse in the Gita which goes, uh, because one can perform it, one's own dharma, though lesser in merit, is better than the dharma of another. Mm -hmm. uh, better is death in one's own dharma. Mm -hmm. The dharma of another brings danger. So it's like, there's still a lot of squabbling among spiritual people. Oh, yeah. uh, there are, you know, it certainly is among religions, they're all fighting with you know, actual weapons, but even among spiritual people there's a lot of squabbling about, oh well that's not non-dual what that guy's doing, and, and you know, my thing is so non-dual, or whatever, I don't need to pick on the non-dual people. But, um, my non-duality is bigger than your non-dual. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if we just had the attitude that different strokes for different folks, you know, and, and whatever a person feels an affinity with, or is drawn toward, then maybe there's a reason for that, you know, and let them do that. And Mm -hmm. if they lose interest in it, then 
fine, they'll pick up something else. But God is not a one-trick pony. No. You know? no. I remember when I was in this, the very, I think it was the very first retreat I ever did. And uh, I went to this, my teacher taught out of her house. So right. she didn't do these long, so I wanted to do one of these Zen sessions, you know. And I went up and she sent me to a teacher she trusted. And um, I did this thing. And I just found it, you know, bone-crushingly difficult. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, literally, all I could do was sit there and meditate in like 14 meditation periods a day or something. And, and just at a certain point, I was just praying, like, just get me through this thing. Uh, just anything, any way of reaching out for help. Sounds like a novitiate. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, it, no longer was it, can I get enlightened? It was just like, can I get to the end of this? Yeah, but, you know, can I survive this? And I remember I kind of went in sheepishly and talked to the the Zen master, we had a little private meeting, and I, it was like a confession, you know, a Buddhist confessing that they're praying, you know, because like, you, know, <laughs> you don't hear Buddhists talk about praying. I said, well, I'm praying, and he said, so how are you praying? And then I told him exactly like how I was doing it. It was very sweet, and he just said, that's absolutely fine. Don't worry about that. Pray that way as much as you want. That's absolutely beautiful. And then, in the afternoon talk, he even, he was so compassionate, I thought, he even, he brought this up again. He didn't say it was me, but he said, yeah, and this, this whole, he talked about prayer. And he talked about the kind of prayer that I said I was doing, basically. And he said, yeah, when you pray like that, it's Buddha praying to Buddha. Mm-hmm. And that's true prayer. It was nice. I knew what he was doing. He was reaching out to this young kid, young, vulnerable kid. And without pointing me out in a whole group of people, he was reaching out again and saying, kid, it's all yeah, right. but you knew who he meant. I knew who he meant, and I think, and he also was probably talking to everybody also. Sure. And I thought it was amazing because it was kind of ironic that you'd think in spirituality, you would think you'd have to confess praying, but it felt <laughs> like that. My point is, that's what I needed at that moment. Yeah, if somebody sure. said, some hardline Buddha said, no, we don't pray, there's no God, there's da-da-da-da-da, I might not have made it. Right. But he, he knew, and he was like, yeah. Okay, that's fine. Do that. I thought it was great when you mentioned in your book, and especially because I have an affinity for her too, uh, St. Therese of Lisieux, Mm -hmm. and how you were in this Zen and it was very dry and kind of very no God, no, you know. And then suddenly you meet this sweet little French bourgeois Carmelite who talks about surrender and God is her loving father and all this, and that that was somehow a path for you, for your heart to open. Absolutely. You know, that 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 opening of the heart is, is an aspect, it's a facet of awakening that if it's not there, it's just not a whole awakening, that mm-hmm. the heart needs to engage, the heart needs to love, the heart needs to even be passionately loving in some way. So I thought that was just beautiful, and yeah. especially because I actually entered Gethsemane on the feast day of St. Therese of Lisieux <laughs> because I had so much devotion to her and mm-hmm. I'd read the story of a soul when I was just a teenager yeah. and just loved her. And she is, she's a very heart opening. They talk about her, her path, her teaching as being the way of the path or the way of spiritual childhood of always remaining kind of like, it's almost like beginner's mind. She's the one they call the little flower. The little flower, yeah, yeah unfortunately. That's yeah. a little maybe just unfortunate name, but because people think then all she is is this sort of sweet little thing. But actually, in that teaching, there's a very ruthless kind of devotion and dedication and immolation of the ego that she teaches. Immolation. Immolation. Yeah, like like burning it up. Yeah. 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 And I think she was also kind of this beautiful midway point because you know there's so many different experiences of love, right? 
mm-hmm. from something that's like really personal when you fall in love to something that can be totally impersonal, like the universal love of existence. And then I think that she was, for me, something sort of in between. There was something, like I said, I think in the book, but it was like having a little high school love affair, which was really weird for me being a Buddhist, you know, and this falling in love with this saint that's been dead for, you know, a long time. And it had such a personal, like you do when you're in high school, you know, it's very personal. And yet it was also touching me into a love that was also beyond personal. But at that moment, I needed a bridge. And that was a bridge between the personal, I don't even like the word personal, but I like bigger than personal. I like transpersonal. That'll work I don't even use personal and impersonal anymore. I use personal and transpersonal. Transpersonal works great for me. But she was a great bridge. Yeah. Later I had sort of a very transpersonal love open up. Sure. But it goes back to the same thing. Like, what do you need at that particular moment? Absolutely. What serves you right now rather than what's what's true in some ultimate Absolutely. sense that we all have to kind of conform ourselves to and hold that as dogma, mm-hmm. whether it's dualistic or non-dualistic, uh, whatever works. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, Vedanta really means the end of the Veda. And right. I can't believe, Vedanta means end. Yeah. And I can't believe that everybody who's like really into Vedanta needs the end teaching at this uh, stage of the game. There I'm could sure. be all kinds of intermediary teachings that would serve them better. And kind of the, this sort of adherence or focus on the end teaching can often end up being just a kind of an intellectual sure. concept or you know intellectual understanding or maybe even with some intuitive flavor to it but which can unfortunately be easily mistaken for actual realization. You know the people that I find are most impacted by like a real radical non-duality that really serves them really well not always but very often it is people that have a long spiritual resume They've really gone on a lot of spiritual practices. They've, you know, the seeker has really been utilized, developed. developed very highly, and then comes in this completely contrary teaching. And it's like, just hits them right at the right moment. Because they have to throw it all away. That they've been set up. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't been set up, if you haven't done anything, sometimes it works, but more often than not, it becomes more intellectual. It becomes sometimes... What you need is to develop a little seeker energy. Yeah. Right. So you've got to take responsibility for the urge within you. So, like every teaching, it's like, when's the right moment for it? Absolutely. And often, when I find people that have the most authentic shifts from those kind of radical teachings that I utilize myself at times, is often when they've put a lot of years and a lot of energy, and that's what they know, and then you come at it with this very surprising yeah. thing, and uh, it just stops the whole game. But you don't necessarily want to stop a game that hasn't even begun yet. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times these days people go, oh, my spirituality, that looks interesting. Oh, here's a book. Mm, it says, end the search. Give up the search. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but we, well, you have to have a search to give up, though. Right. <laughs> and we forget that the, the, the great proponents, especially in the last hundred years of that kind of teaching, someone like Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta Maharaj, these are both people that had no mm-hmm. problem handing out Hamdina practices to people. Yeah, sure. Sadhana. You know, and then in the next breath, they might totally discount it when they're talking to a different, different person. People. They'd say, no, you don't need any of that. Stop that right away. It's, you don't need to be doing that. And you see if, when you read through them that they, weren't, they had no rigid adherence to a particular realization. Their, their adherence was, what does this person need at this particular moment? And I'll give them that. If they need to practice, if they need to do japa or sing to God or 
meditate or whatever. They would show no hesitancy in giving that to them. Mm -hmm. And I think in the West, you know, we, we tend to homogenize and dummy down almost everything we get. Like as, as soon as culture gets a hold of it, it's kind of ruined. Because what we do is we take what is self-serving, basically, and then we kind of eliminate unconsciously everything that doesn't conform to what we want to hear. Mm. And I think that's what happens in all kinds. It's not just the non-duality thing. All kinds of religions. Oh, sure. we, we tend to take what we, we like and what it. feels comfortable and yeah, reduce or eliminate the parts that are more challenging to us that would actually call us to task for some way we're holding on or discounting or... Well, there's a time to hold on and there's a time to let go. Yeah? That's right. The Buddha has this great analogy in the Pali Canon. I can't remember what sutta, but it's like... Um, this analogy of the, of the boat crossing a stream. And he says, you know, the person carries the boat to the stream, they get in the boat, they cross the stream, and then they get to the other shore. And then they leave the boat behind and they walk on land. They continue their journey. But they don't give up the boat in the middle of the stream. You know, but they don't give up the boat before they enter the stream. They keep the boat when it's appropriate to use the boat. And then when the boat's job is done, they let the boat go and they move on. But it's not, it's really crucial to know when to hold on to the boat and keep it and use it and when to let go of it. It's totally appropriate when they cross the stream to say, okay, let go of that and continue on foot. But if you say that at the beginning, you'd be doing them a disservice, right. you know? So I think it's the same with like spiritual teaching. A lot of people have this idea and you, and you hear a lot of sort of teaching that seems to have, like you say, it's like a one-trick pony. It's like, okay, do this, do this, or don't do this, or don't do anything, or whatever. And you think, okay, well, that's a perfectly good teaching for somebody, for somebody right. at a certain point. It's like giving a doctor giving penicillin to everybody. You know, It's like there'll be a few people who that will help, but there'll be some people who it won't serve so well. Mm -hmm. Might even hurt. Yeah. Could even hurt. Mm -hmm. So you have to really be very, very careful and very, very individual in a certain sense. Undogmatic. Undogmatic and open to, okay, what's going to work in this situation with this particular person at this particular time, at this point in their journey? And that's a very, very individual point of discernment, really, on both a part of the student and the teacher, both. Yeah, because I can kind of look back and go, geez, in one, you know, in some absolute sense, like, yeah, geez, the thing I was seeking was really obscured by all my seeking. I can see that. Yeah. Sure. It really obscured it. But my seeking, all the seeking, which boy did I see, the seeking wore something out in me, which Absolutely. had to be worn out. Apparently, I couldn't see it at that time. Right. You know? So I had to kind of, I had my, as my teacher said, yeah, everybody has a dance to dance. You got to dance your dance all the way out. Yep. Don't be trying to dance everybody else's dance. Just dance it all the way out. And so in some absolute view, I can go, oh, it was in some abstract sense, totally unnecessary. Except that, for me, it appeared to be quite necessary. Sure. In actual daily living out of, you know, my life. I heard this great story the other day. This, this um, spiritual aspirant went to a master and he said, Master, give me the highest teaching. I want, I want the highest spiritual teaching. And the master said, okay, thou art that. And he, and he thought, is that all there is to it? I think I'll go find another teacher. So he went and he found himself another teacher and, and he said, Master, give me the highest teaching. I'm, I'm, I really want it. And the master said, okay, take this shovel and start shoveling this Commodore. 
and I'll be right back. So the master I'll took right off. I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that one before from these masters. So the master took off, and for 12 years, the guy shoveled the cow manure, you know, took right care, back, took yeah, care of the cows, years. and like really did it with absolute sincerity and dedication and, and all that. And finally, the master came back. He said, oh, master, you're back. Please give me the highest spiritual teaching. And the master said, thou art that. <laughs> and he got it. He got it. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a great story. It's a great story. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we often run into that other paradox. Even when you realize the absolute nature of reality, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have um, emotional maturity. Absolutely not. It doesn't yeah. mean you know how to be in a relationship, whether it's intimates, friends, work. It, does, it doesn't convey a lot of these other functions any more than you wake up and all of a sudden you understand physics. Right. And so I think there's often that kind of honesty that yeah. has to go, well, okay, there might be real clarity, but that clarity is having a really tough time operating here mm. yeah. and here. And it takes a kind of humility to take a little bit a step down off the top of your mountain and to go, okay, I got to have the top of the mountain be able to function here. And that's going to take some work. That's going to take some intention. I'm going to have to do something. You know, it's much more probably guidance, also probably some Absolutely. objective view of somebody else that's not in it, that can look at it, and who's been there and who's had that happen, yeah. and they can say, okay, I, I get this, I, I did that too, right. I, I remember that. Been you know? through this. Yeah. Yes, mm. I think so. Yeah, that goes kind of back to humility, because, I mean, we all know where the places in life where we function from a much more aware, conscious, awake sure. place, and we all know the places that we don't. It's not like if we were all completely honest, we wouldn't even need to be told. Because you just find it, you know, just go through, take one given day and keep your eyes open, you'll see it. Yeah. You know, it'll be there for you. That brings up an interesting point, which is that it would seem that the Shakti or the spiritual energy that awakens, it wants to clear the channels. You know, it wants to sort of enrich, uh, shed light on the dark areas or whatever metaphors we want to use. And I mean, you went through this thing recently with the pain and after mm -hmm. you came back from Europe and everything. And I, I, I think I heard you say someplace that when you teach, the energy kind of wells up even more and that sure. can exacerbate the situation. Mm -hmm. um, it's all sorts of, some illness kind of things, the energy can be great for, can just dispel yeah, yeah. it. And some things, the some energy aggravates. can look, especially if you have something like I did that tied very much into the central nervous system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you run a lot of Shakti through the, nerve, the central nervous system that's already screaming out in pain. It's very uncomfortable. So, I mean, what was your conclusion about that? Was it that somehow the, the spiritual energy is trying to revamp your nervous system even more to make it a more effective conduit? Or do you just question. have some condition that was being aggravated by? Yeah, uh, at least at this point, at this point, I mean, I've had this on and off for 10 years. Mm. This isn't a new thing. So at this point, I mean, it all started with some terrible infection that I had. Mm. And, it, and I convinced pretty much that the infection actually did some actual damage to yeah. something because it was there for a long time. So I look at it in, with pretty practical eyes. As you can imagine, I've looked at it at every which way you can imagine. Spiritual, psychological, blockages, not blockages, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I usually have a pretty good intuitive sense of these kind of things. With this particular thing, at least right now, could be different tomorrow. But it just seems like, yeah, something was really, was really kind of damaged mm. through this terrible infection. And, and it ties into the, to the nervous system. And it's a weak point. And yeah, maybe someday it'll heal. Of course, I still work on that a lot. But beyond that, I have no, no more sort of esoteric, more understandings. Like the, life's trying to accomplish something. Yeah. 
talk to me in five years, I might have a different view of it. You know, I'm, you, but that's the way it seems. It's a date, we'll do that. But certainly I have been through in my 20s and stuff when I had some very quite long couple of six-month illnesses that laid me out. Those were absolutely directly tied to identities that were Sure. That life was bound and determined to just crush. Just pounding out of you. Yeah, and since they were had to do with being a very physically strong athlete, mm. how, how better to crush those than to just make you sick and tell you're like weak as a puppy? You know, it's hard to be physically yeah. <laughs> thoughtful of yourself when it, you know, you're trying to go on. You can't like, get up and out of bed or something. That's right, right. And it, crush, you know, it crushes it out. And then in my case, I remember afterwards it felt extraordinary not to have that mm -hmm. persona anymore yeah. absolutely huh. so liberating so freeing so that's a case where illness really was yeah. directly related to a you know spiritual growth process and there are other examples of that i mean didn't saint francis go through some oh, thing sure. that almost killed him and then when, at least the movie brother sun sister moon when he came out of it it was like a whole new world somehow there had been this huge purging that took well and you've got the stigmata of saint francis which is the wounds of christ appearing mm -hmm. on his body which i think is interesting and there's been all kinds of studies on stigmata and there was padre pio and brother angelo and these different stigmatists that were kind of postmodern people or at least modern characters and they've determined that you know a lot of it is certainly psychosomatic but i think it's significant it's like there's something and it points to that reality of that union of relative and absolute that the body is just connected to the whole deal it's not you know it's we're not somehow disembodied sort of spirits we're very embodied and what happens on a Temple spiritual level has ramifications on the physical level and there's just and no, vice versa and vice versa mm -hmm. and there's just no doubt about it and it's just clear from these experiences and you got the story of jesus too where i mean like when you were describing your, your experience with with sickness and when you're in your 20s and so on and then more recently and how that's like living a teaching like you're living an actual spiritual path in your body it's manifesting in your body and you look at the story of the crucifixion and then the resurrection whatever the heck that is i you know i don't know but that's like this very bodily thing and it's this great spiritual teaching that has all kinds of levels of meaning all kinds of uh, ramifications all kinds of applications if anything shows that there's absolutely no separation between the absolute and relative levels, that would show you. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a, one of the amazing things about the story is, you know, you talk to 20 different people that have read the story enough to be really know it. And they'll have very different ways of relating to it. Sure. You know, some, some person, someone says, uh, I don't love you anymore. And they feel like, I know now what it's like to be crucified by Christ. <laughs> yeah. You know, a mystic will feel like their, you know, egos being nailed to the cross. And they really feel like they're being dying in a much more essential way. Mm -hmm. And they'll, they'll identify with that and everything in between. And I think that's the power of stories is, is not a right, a correct way to look at it. No. You can find what you're experiencing and you can make a correspondence out of the story and maybe through that sometimes they will have a way of talking to you communicating to you that's what makes a story archetypal 
in the sense that it is a type, but it's an archetype. It's, it's a type that just covers so much territory. And so many people can relate to it on so many different levels, you know? Mm -hmm. That's like the crucifixion of uh, Jesus or the Buddha's enlightenment under the tree and the temptations of Mara and all this stuff he went through. And we all can look at those stories and we can all feel into that like in our own experience somehow. And my sense is that's what these stories are meant. You know, whether or not they literally happen or historical and all that, some people will ask me things like that. And I think, well, that's interesting on one level if you want to like look at a special on the History Channel or something, okay. But as far as their spiritual significance, I think it's almost irrelevant. It doesn't really, because that's not the point of it. The point of it is how do you live into this story? How do you embody this this story you know uh what's your experience of it and in the ancient world stood they, they very much felt that. like stories were the means that you conveyed massive truth sure you don't convey massive truth through facts right you know and i think that's one of the things that we've forgotten to a large extent we think okay if it's a story if we call it a myth that means then it's not true it's not true and that's not what it means it means yeah. myths are are, are conveying huge truths Absolutely. about human existence that don't, you can't conveniently put in uh, facts or even a theology. Right. It's like you, you paint the picture and then you, you throw yourself into that story and, and yeah. then it, it start, you find the truth of it. It's bigger than any kind of explanation of it or theology that comes out of it or, mm -hmm. you know, like I've, I've often thought about how you got the, uh, the estate of Elvis Presley where only, only certain people can use his image or a song or whatever. And I think we thought a lot about the Jesus myth and the Jesus story a lot like that. Like, well, only Christians can use that. Like nobody else can use it. And my sense is, no, it's bigger than that. It's not limited to people who interpret it theologically. It's a, it's a universal archetype. It could speak to anybody. It could speak to a Buddhist or a Hindu or a, a Jewish person or anybody. You know, it's not just confined to its traditional sort of component. And I think sometimes individuals' life will actually contain a lot of archetypal elements. Oh, and I yeah. think those are the kind of lives that tend to live through over the century that sure. people refer back to them because there, there was something about their life that actually embodied a huge amount of archetypal material. And some of those are really historically accurate. Some of them may be a real mixture. Right. But I think there are people's lives that even you know today that sure. you just get the feeling they're like living on a very large archetypical kind of level. That's just what's being brought in through their, through their existence. And that something speaks to us. The Joseph Campbell work, Opus, is really good on all this. Mm -hmm. He's very good about seeing that myth has a truth. It's not, we think, like you say, we think of myth, we think, oh, it's not true if it's a myth. He's saying, no, it's really, really true if it's a myth. It's so true that it's, it doesn't even matter if it's literally true. Right. It's truth on a completely different level mm -hmm. than a newsreel truth. Because mm -hmm. facts don't convey truth. You know, like we can talk forever. We can describe what an orange tastes like forever. And right. it'll, never have, it'll never have any taste, much, like, much less the taste of an orange. But you can have all your facts straight, your scientific facts straight. You can, you know, everything can be really perfectly done really nicely, but it won't convey it. If you told a story, you, the story isn't going to give you the taste either, but it can convey something with much more nuance.
because I think it captures your imagination. It, it sort of brings it and pulls you through your imagination into an experience, like a poem does, right? Or a song. Yeah. You read a poem, you listen to a song, and sometimes at the end of the poem, all of a sudden, you just get it. Yeah. Got it. Or a song, you're listening to it, and all of a sudden, it changes your state, you know, and you, you get it. If someone said, now what exactly did you get? You might not even be able to say this, this, and this, and this, and this, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you're not perfectly clear about what you got. Sure. You just might not be able to... Or like fact, falling in love, you know, people say, well, why do you love this person? You can say, well, they have beautiful eyes, they have this, they have that. Mm -hmm. But you can't really mm -mm. describe, you can't, you can't really give a description or you can't like list a group of facts that somehow convey your love for this person. You love them because you love them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a mystery. It's just bigger than facts. It's bigger than any kind of description. In fact, I think there's a direct equation that the more clearly you experience the truth of something, the less you can say about it. Yeah. Even though we're in the business in some way of talking endlessly about it. Yeah. Uh, disreputable reputation if, or occupation if there ever was one. But, but even that, I think, at least for me, when I go really into my direct experience of truth or what I am or who we are, however we put that, that is literally the one thing that not only can I not say to somebody what it is, but I can't even talk about it in my mind because I talk away from it, not towards it. And I've always found that to be so curious that truth is the one thing that you can have such clarity about, but you can't talk even to yourself about it. I mean, you can, but it's whatever you say to yourself isn't it. You know, I can say, okay, well, yeah, I am consciousness, but when I go back, if I'm really rigidly being honest with what I'm actually experiencing, it's like, no, that, that's not even close. Yeah. That might be as close as I, you know, you can come in words, in words, but no, but that's not it. And then you look for, okay, what's it? Nothing's it. Not only to describe it to you or to you, but even to talk to myself. Right. It's like, nothing's it. I can't even talk to myself about it. If I stay really, really directly true, yourself, true, yeah. true mm -hmm. you know, of course, then you try to use words skillfully to help yeah, direct, you can. direct direct somebody or sometimes you're even directing yourself. You're trying to drop into something that's wordless. There's a great uh, saying attributed to St. Francis, I'm not sure whether he historically said it or not, but it's great anyway. And it's that, uh, preach the gospel wherever you go, if necessary, use words. <laughs> so it's like the preaching of the gospel, is, then the gospel's good news, you know? Yeah. And there, this, you know, this, this truth of that who you are on the deepest level, it is good news. But the only way you can teach it, I, I had a chapter in that book I wrote about, it was called The Deepest Teaching is Silence, mm -hmm. that really, and you have a book, isn't it uh, something about silence? My secret is silence. My secret is silence. Mm -hmm. that, Really, unless you can kind of live in that silence and embody that and radiate that into the world, you can say all the right words, you can say all the most eloquent, articulate, non-dual, up the wazoo, and it won't do anything. If you're not living in that, if you're not somehow living and breathing that, then you won't ever be a teacher. You know, you have to embody it. You have to, like he said, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. You have to be it. You have to be the gospel. Mm -hmm in order to convey it somehow. And then almost everything you say will convey it. And even the words might suck. They might mm -hmm. be the worst words, you know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the case. You read about different lives of different saints and mystics and sages and so on. And sometimes you read some of their words and you think, well, big deal, you know, that doesn't sound so hot. Mm -hmm. And yet you think, well, 
It wasn't their words. There was something else there. There was a presence there. There was a reality there that was just pulling people, speaking to people, radiating into the world something kind of ineffable. Mm -hmm. And people felt it and people awakened around that. You know, Francis, I wonder if you've ever had this experience, how, how you can feel, you know, you can pick up a book. And you can feel the consciousness of oh, yeah. us, but you read through it. You can feel, right? You can feel kind of where they're at when you're sensitive. And like you're saying, I've had the experience of reading through a book and feeling a tremendous sort of presence. You're actually feeling the author. But the words are completely uninteresting. Yeah. You know, like, you just, you just oh, God, I can't read another page. But, but man, whoever wrote this, I would love to meet that person because something is really powerful going on in this book. And then sometimes they match up. You know, you get someone that, 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 that is extraordinarily realized and you feel that presence and their words are eloquent and beautiful and amazing. And but, that's great when that happens. But yeah. But it's, it's not the crucial thing. It's, it's not the, the presence thing. is more important than the words, definitely. Mm-hmm. In no. India, they have what are called babbling saints, who are realized saints, but they're completely inept as far as any sort of description, and so they just kind of babble, make nonsense, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, people regard them as, as saints. I've met some. I've <laughs> Here, I've met some. <laughs> babbling saints. Mm-hmm. Here in the house? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> yeah, ask Mukti that. Do you have some cats? And no, but so sometimes people are sort of such a deep state that yeah. their, their speaking becomes completely nonlinear. And, and if you can't follow underneath their words, it sounds like complete nonsense. Like you just, they might just carry them off to the, to the mental ward. But you, if sometimes people are speaking and you just realize they're just in such a nonlinear place that their communication hasn't linked up. Mm. And actually they're quite fine or they can be very, very clear. Mm-hmm. But their communi- they just haven't. That hasn't they can't been connected. articulate it. They can't articulate it because it's so nonlinear. They can't force themselves to be linear. When I went through a period in 2010 when that happened to me in church that day, where I, and I had to do a lot of, I did preaching, I did reading and things like that, you know, in the liturgy. I was in a monastery, so, and I had to get up and do readings quite frequently, like every week, many times. And I remember getting up to do a reading and looking at the lectionary, and it literally looked like a page with just, scratches on it It for about probably I don't know maybe as long as 30 seconds and I got up there and I was like (laughs) and that and I think it is it's like a it's a natural kind of phase of awakening where the mind just really at the at the beginning of this really profound stable shift that really just never leaves after that when that really happened the mind just really turns off for a while. Mm-hmm. Pretty literally, it just turns off. Everything you say, I mean, I remember just trying to say something about, I was working in the kitchen and I'd say, you know, can you get that paring knife? Or like any words I said always felt like they were out of sync with reality. Mm-hmm. It just felt like, uh, that doesn't say it. Can you get that paring <laughs> You know, let alone <laughs> spiritual words. My spiritual director was saying, well, can you describe what happened to you? And that's how I wrote that book. He, he had me do journals. Mm-hmm. I didn't intend to write a book, I just wrote these journals because I could not at first, for a good several months, I could not put into words what had happened. Every time I tried to do it, I would just go into this blissful state <laughs> and I wouldn't, I'd start crying and I couldn't speak anymore. <laughs> so it's a phase, but you know, you, can't, you don't want to stay there forever, of course. Yeah. Neither do you want to jump out too quickly. No, it's not, not a bad place. That's not a bad place, no. Mm. <laughs> Uh, we have maybe a few minutes left. We were talking about something about an hour ago. 
and I'm still curious about it. And I'm wondering if you guys can even speak about it without becoming speculative. But you were talking about how you had to be careful about what you wished for, you know, because you keep getting it. I imagine you're probably donating rhinoceroses to the zoo or something, you know, whatever you were wishing <laughs> Not quite for. to that one. <laughs> if I had a rhinoceros, I would never give it up. <laughs> I'm reminded of a story in the Bible, which you can tell better, about, the, was it the Roman centurion who came and he said, Oh, yeah, My yeah, yeah. soldier or something is sick, and Jesus, would you come here and help him? Well, his son was sick. Tell the story. And he was not present to Jesus. And he said, my son is sick, I, I want you to heal him. And Jesus said, well, bring him here. And the man said, he's too sick, I can't bring him here. But I'm, I'm a man with people under me, under my authority. And I t say to this one, you go there. And I say to that one, you go there. And they go. Yeah. And I know that you are a man of authority, so you can say... You be healed, even though he's not here, he will be healed. And then it said, Jesus said, your faith has, has healed him. Mm -hmm. And it said, in that moment, the, the son was healed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the reason I wanted you to tell that story is that I'm interested in the mechanics. It, it fascinates me what the mechanics might be. And you were talking earlier about subtle perceptions and all sorts of what, angels and stuff that might be existing on, on subtler levels. What are the mechanics through which one desires something I mean, I had this weird experience once where I was living in this kind of a monastery type of place in upstate New York, and we couldn't get into town or anything. And I had a bunch of strange desires for different things I needed. I want to go through them all. And, but um, <laughs> one of them happened to be decorative shoe buckles for these Florsheim <laughs> shoes that I owned that I had gotten wet, and when they dried out with shoe trees in them, the buckles, the buckles broke, right? And so I was reassigned to a different room. And there in that room were pretty much everything on the list that I had wanted, except for the shoe buckles. So there's a reality to that. And so, but I went to dinner that night, and as I was walking down the hallway, I noticed there was an air conditioner in the hallway. I noticed something on the top of it. I looked up there. There was a pair of decorative shoe buckles that fit my shoes, and they're not, they weren't the ones I had lost or broken or any such thing. How does that happen? You know, what are the mechanics through which mechanics. very specific desires can be fulfilled? Who's, who's pulling the strings? Guys well, have any ideas? Do you have any I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know that things like that do happen. And a, a parallel that I find really interesting is, and we've, and you, I know this is a topic you like to talk about, is this idea of witnessing sleep and so on. And ever since the shift happened, with me anyway, my dreaming is just all lucid. I don't ever have a non-lucid dream. I mean, all my dreams are lucid. And one thing you discover about lucid dreaming is you can control your dreams. If you're in a lucid dream and you know you're dreaming while you're dreaming, you can just manifest things in the dream. And I've often thought there's a parallel reality there. In the dream of this life, things can be manifested. I mean, things, and a lot of people poo-poo the secret and all that, and they say, well, that's not a very high teaching, and it's so on and so forth. It's like, yeah, it's not a high teaching, it's not gonna lead to enlightenment, but after a kind of awakening, there is a reality of that. Like Adya was talking about that manifesting things. I've seen it in my own life too, mm -hmm. where you just, a passing thought, like you just have this, oh, it would be nice to have some lasagna. And then it just shows up, like somebody, takes you out to dinner and you get lasagna or, you know, it sounds trite and silly. Yeah. And the mechanics of it, I don't know, but I think it is a kind of natural byproduct, you could say almost. It's, and it's not perfect. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, an awakened person can't be diagnosed with some incurable cancer or lose sure, all yeah. their money or whatever. That right. Surely they can. But there is a reality there, I think. Mm -hmm.
mechanics though. There's this verse in the Vedas which goes, the riches seek out him who is awake. And the riches are, are understood to be impulses of intelligence that are responsible for the manifestation and governance of the physical universe. So I, I kind of get this impression of this kind of orchestrated arrangement whereby, you know, like with the soldier, if he wants something done, he sends his, mm -hmm. he sends his underlings to do the thing. This orchestrated arrangement whereby some laws of nature, impulses of intelligence or something, are at the beck and call of someone who is awake. And um, it's something that interests me and or not. I wish to understand. Or not, yeah. you're not Because you, it may you, not be in your best interest. Well, no, because you can, you can develop these. Uh, I know I've met people that have very highly developed skills like we're talking about that aren't awake. Right. Yes. They, they, you can be awake, but they don't. And sometimes they come, some of them come right. as sort of the package, but there are people that have them in spades and aren't awake, and sometimes they're not even very nice human beings to be around at times. Yeah. So they're kind of, they're connected, but it's also a different line of development. Well, they may have managed to capture a diamond mine without having captured the fort. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I think there are some, there are right. some awakened people yeah. who don't have much of that no. manifesting in their life right. for some reason. And it's just a very individual reality. Or they may have captured the fort and not begun to explore the territory. Or maybe that's just not their territory. Or you they know. may not be. Like, I don't really consciously utilize it. It's very rarely that I consciously utilize it. Right. Mostly it because I find... It happens spontaneously, probably. It, it, I, it does happen spontaneously, but what I find is, is I find life is always has better, generally has better plans than I come up with. Uh, right, right. And I mean that, like, very, very literally. You yes. might go, well, you know, I would, I would like this, but... It doesn't actually mean that if you get that, that you're going to like it or yeah. that it's going to be good for you. Or there's something else, I think, that there's a better orchestrator than our, than our own minds. Yeah. That's, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's that surrender again. That's that sense that, and in that sense, I think a kind of devotional sense of God and a surrender to God, if you want to even put in those words, can be really helpful and keep I a person too. humble and keep a person yeah. not thinking that they're sort of running the whole show and right. just, you know, life is bigger than me and what I want. And it's, a, it, it's so easy that it becomes the whole spiritual materialism thing. Yeah. I think that's why there's the warnings about it because sure. let's say you can manifest things. Right. The only difference between manifesting and what most people do, most people go to work, earn money, and buy what they want. You can manifest some of the things you want, but the underlying motivations can be exactly the same. Sure. The ego motivation, if I get what I want, that's what will make me happy. Mm. And it just doesn't end up to be true. Whether you can manifest it or you got to go out and buy it with cash, doesn't matter which way you get it. It's still the underlying truth, at least as I've seen, is that's not what's going to make you happy. Right. That's not what's going to make you satisfied. It's not what's going to lead to a meaningful rich existence. Well, there's that great Marilyn Monroe thing. Remember, I've what was that? used many times where Marilyn Monroe reportedly said, once you get what you want, you don't want it, <laughs> yeah. which I would imagine she would know about yeah. that. But. Well, you know, you're talking earlier about Jesus being tempted by the devil and this whole balancing act that one has to, which you have to continue to perform no matter how spiritually advanced you are, where individual intentions can take the reins. Mm -hmm. and cause all kinds of trouble. So it seems to me that we have desires, we have intentions, we have motivations, and that's natural. And you have to kind of temper those with a simultaneous surrender and innocence so as not to be heavy-handed about the pursuit of them. Yeah. You know, so as to let 
what is that bumper sticker, let go and let God. So as to, so as to let God actually fulfill these motivations, but still, you have them, you have initiatives, you have aspirations. It's important too to acknowledge that human beings have desires. Even awakened human beings have desires. And there's a beautiful story in the life of St. Francis where it says when he was dying, he had this woman who was very a devotee of his, very devoted. He called her brother Jacoby. Her, a brother? He called her? She, he called her brother because she was so devoted to the brothers that he gave her this honorific title of brother. And she knew that he liked these particular raisin cakes that were he was very fond of. And when he died, when he was dying, in the process of dying, she baked these cakes and brought them to him. And I was always really touched by the humanity and vulnerability of that, that here's this great saint. And he says, you know, I really would love to have these raisin cakes that my mom used to make for me. And she makes them and brings them. Because I think a lot of times there's these kind of myths about awakening that, you know, once a person's awakened, they have absolutely no human desire left and all that. And it's like, no, maybe they see their human desires with a greater perspective. They see that they're not all important. They're not absolutely important, but they could still have like a relative importance. You could still prefer, I don't know, one thing to another thing yeah. as an outcome. And I think it's over the royals. Right, right. right. <laughs> and, the, and I think desire also is just something that can be operating from lots of different levels of being. Like sure. even the, you know, when we talk about to serve, that's a desire, right, in Absolutely. some way. That's it's a noble desire. It's a noble desire, right? It could, we could call it a, a selfless desire, but nonetheless, in a certain sense, it's a desire. You want to do it. You know, to go help somebody, you want to actually do that. You need some impetus that's fueling you. And so I think our desires, it's not so much of, of having no desires. The desires become more conscious as well. Like I said, it, you know, when you get really clear that having everything you want has very little to do with what makes you happy. Mm. Sure, if, you're, if you don't have enough to feed yourself and your kids and you're you know, living in some little shanty shack that, that's freezing, of course those desires, that's going to make you a lot happier if you're in a place that's warm and you have enough food and clothing. and That is going to contribute a lot to your happiness. But at a certain point, I think we realize beyond this sort of base level of comfortable existence, all of a sudden it, it kind of shifts and you realize no, it doesn't actually. It, and it's kind no, of pointing out the, the, the difference between like a relative happiness and an absolute happiness. That yeah. there is an absolute happiness that is unconditional happiness. Mm -hmm. And that's what awakening is all about. It's discovering that within oneself, that there's this absolute unconditional happiness there. And yet that doesn't mean that on a relative level you wouldn't prefer to like not have your hand cut off or you know or like when i had my foot my foot was was possibly going to have to be amputated because it was really infected they weren't sure if i was going to get the if the infection had gone to the bone he said i'm just telling you if it's gone to the bone chances are at least part of your foot's going to have to come off and i just want to be really honest with you about that and for a while honestly i went through like 15 minutes I cried, I felt sad about it, and I thought, gosh, I won't be able to run anymore. I'd probably get a process, you know, all these things flood your mind. And then it was kind of done. And I realized, well, even that sadness, even that pain, even that anxiety in a certain sense was arising in this unconditional place of peace. As odd as it sounds, it's like, yeah, it sounds like those two things would be mutually exclusive. But my experience was that, no, that, that's still there. It doesn't obliterate the pain or the anxiety or the human vulnerability, but even that 
arises and ceases in this, this space of peace. Yeah, drop mud in a glass of water, drop mud in an ocean. Yeah. Very different kind of reaction, mm -hmm. but it's yeah. still the same amount of mud. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> That's a great metaphor. <laughs> That's in the Rick Sutra. <laughs> the Rick Sutra. <laughs> well, we've been going on for almost two, two hours. We should probably wrap it up. So this has really been great. I mean, I'm sure that we could go on for another two hours and keep thinking of things to say. So. But I'm sure we could. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate your having allowed us to come. Oh, my do pleasure. This. I've been wanting to do it for a long time, so it's really happy to be able to do it. And maybe we'll do some more things in the future. I'm out here for the Science and Non-Duality Conference, and I'll be taping four or five more things over the next couple of days. So uh, if you're tuning into this for the first time, there's already 250 other ones to watch. So <laughs> if this is the first time, there'll be plenty of things to explore if you care to do so. Batgap.com is the website and uh, just explore the menus there and you'll see past interviews categorized and organized in different ways and uh, you'll see a donate button, you'll see a place to sign up for notification by email of new interviews, um, there's a link to an audio podcast with every interview so that you can uh, listen on iTunes if you don't feel like sitting in front of your computer for two hours. That's it basically. Thanks for listening or watching. You guys have any final words? Lots of fun, Rick. Glad to have you both here. Good. Yeah. Good to be here. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. <laughs> really great. Thank you all for listening and watching. See you for the next one, whichever that one might be.